Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone, to today's Earth Energy Forecast Show on this Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. Thank you for tuning in today, or if you're listening later to the podcast. I am your host, Joan Serio. I hope all of you are well. There is no denying that we're in a time of great change. Today's show is about that change. I taped the interview with Stefan Schwartz you're about to hear on Thursday, March 19th. The interview ended abruptly when we got disconnected from our Skype call. But before I play that interview, let me first introduce you to this incredible man. Stephan A. Schwartz is a distinguished consulting faculty of Saybrook University and a BIAL fellow. He is an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, columnist for the journal Explore, and editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net, in both of which he covers trends that are affecting the future. For 50 years, he has been studying the nature of consciousness, particularly that aspect independent of time and space. Schwartz is part of the small group that founded Modern Remote Viewing Research and is the principal researcher studying the use of remote viewing in archaeology. Using remote viewing, he discovered Cleopatra's Palace, Mark Anthony's Timonium, ruins of the lighthouse of the pharaohs, and sunken ships along the California coast and in the Bahamas. He also uses remote viewing to examine the future. Since 1978, he has been getting people to remote view the year 2050, and out of that has come a complex trend analysis. His submarine experiment, Deep Quest, using remote viewing, helped determine that non-local consciousness is not an electromagnetic phenomenon. He is the author of more than 130 technical reports and papers. He also writes... uh, regularly for the Huffington Post. His other academic and research appointments include Senior Samueli Fellow for Brain, Mind, and Healing of the Samueli Institute, Founder and Research Director of the Mobius Laboratory, Director of Research of the Rhine Research Center, and Senior Fellow of the Philosophical and and a philosophical research society. Government appointments include special assistant assistant for research and analysis to the chief of naval operations, consultant to the oceanographer of the Navy. He has also been editorial staff member of National Geographic, associate editor of Sea Power, 
and staff reporter and feature writer for the Daily Press and the Times Herald. In addition to his experimental studies, he has written numerous magazine articles for Smithsonian, Omni, American History, American Heritage, The Washington Post, The New York Times, as well as other magazines and newspapers. He is the recipient of the Parapsychological Association Outstanding Contribution Award, OOOM Magazine in Germany, 100 Most Inspiring People in the World Award, and the 2018 Albert Nelson Marquis Award for Outstanding Contributions. He has produced and written a number of television documentaries, including Psychic Detectives on ABC, Psychic Sea Hunt, NBC, the series report of the vault, uh, sorry, series report from the unknown MCA Universal, It's a Small World, USIA, and has written four nonfiction books The Secret Vaults of Time, The Alexandria Project, Mind Rover, Opening to the Infinite, and his latest, The Eight Laws of Change, winner of the 2016 Nautilus Book Award for Social Change as well as three novels, Awakening, A Vision, um, is three novels, Awakening, A Novel of Aliens and Consciousness, 2017, winner of the Book Excellent Award for Literary Excellence, The Vision, A Novel of Time and Consciousness, 2018, The Amish Girl, A Novel of Death and Consciousness, 2019. Schwartz is listed in Who's Who in the World, Who's Who in America, Who's Who in the West, and Who's Who in Healthcare and Medicine. I'm so sorry I, I, I stumbled over that. That is a lot to read, and that's a lot that this man has accomplished. And I am so grateful that he's on the show. And so without further ado, I'm going to bring Stefan Schwartz onto the show, and here's his interview. So thank you so much, uh, Stefan, for coming on to the show today. I'm very pleased and honored to have you here. It's my pleasure. You are a prolific writer. You've written seven books and hundreds of papers and articles, mainly on the topic of the nature of human consciousness and the trends that affect our future. What sparked this insatiable curiosity of yours about human consciousness? Uh, when I was 24 years old, as a result of a series of, of rather bizarre synchronicities, I woke up, and that changed my whole life. I got introduced uh, to the Edgar Casey material, about which I knew nothing, and I began, you know, I'm very systematic, so I began to read all of the readings, uh, 14,145 of them for 5,734 people. And wow. uh, and after about two years into that, I decided I'd start reading the very first one and just read all the way to the end. And in those days, this is back in the early 1960s, Gladys Davis, his archivist and lifelong secretary, was still alive and Hugh Lynn Casey, his son. And... Um, I met them, and, and they were very supportive of what I was doing and, and made stuff available to me. And then about two years into it, two and a half years into it, I thought, well, I better start reading what science says about these subjects. 
And so I started reading every journal article that had been published up to that date and every book that had been written up to that date, any, any of the serious books. And I eventually spent five years at it, and then I began be doing experiments myself. And with, uh, in parallel to that, I've done a number of other things, but I have just pursued that interest. Uh, it's now over 50 years. That's incredible that you read all of those writings. Just incredible. Uh, and do you feel that Edgar Casey then, when he was seeing into the future, was really doing remote viewing? Well, remote viewing is a protocol. Um, it's just a way of doing it that I and a couple of other guys created back in the 70s. I would say that non, I would call it non-local perception, that is the mm -hmm. ability to open and access non-locally sourced information. <clears throat> and I would say that Edgar Casey was probably the most gifted person on record. His readings constitute the largest carefully documented because Gladys Davis was a brilliant archivist. Um, the, probably the largest documented body of non-local perception data that exists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for our listeners, what is remote viewing? Well, in order to really see how remote viewing, get the context of remote viewing, when I started reading um, the parapsychological literature, as I said, I, I went to the very first journal that had ever been published and, and I just read all of them um, from the, from the beginning of early part of the 20th century up to the uh, that point, the 1960s. And the thing that stood out about most, uh, uh, more than anything else, about the the papers that were published in the journals, the academic research was what was called the decline effect. That is, the more experiments they did with people, the worse people got. And it was a huge deal. I mean, you don't hear much about it anymore because yeah. we figured out how to deal with it. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at the time, it was a very big deal. And um, so the more I read, uh, when I compared what the parapsychologist community was doing with what was recorded in the Edgar Casey material, it seemed obvious to me that the way to get around this was to, this decline effect was to design experiments. That's a protocol. It's kind of a ritual mm -hmm. in which um, you you had complete control that of blindness and randomness and that kind of thing, which is important in science to know that it's really non-local and not just somebody making something up or something you read somewhere earlier. Um was to get free response data about interesting subjects, but to do it in a way in which you had complete control over blindness and randomness and the statistical analysis that came out of it. And that's basically remote viewing. What we did was we, uh, myself, Russ Targ, Hal Putoff, Ingo Swan, we began, I mean, I didn't know them at the time. This was in the 60s. In fact, they hadn't started doing research yet. 
But the idea was to get people to do free response, that is, just talk about it, just like you and I are talking, and um, uh, about things that they couldn't know and that you could prove that they couldn't know. So most of my experiments were precognitive, not all, but many, most of them. And the very first thing that I, I, I started doing at the very beginning was I, w I made a grid on my back garden. I was living in Virginia Beach in those days. And I made a grid of 12 squares. And I would bury in those, one of the squares, I would bury in a mason jar or in a 35 millimeter film canister uh, something. Mm-hmm. And then I would send out a mimeograph. That's how old this was. Right, yeah, I remember. I, I would yeah. send out a, a, a little chart, a little um, picture of the, of, the, um, of the grid that I had made. Originally, it had, it had 12 squares, and then I increased it to 144 squares because it gave stronger statistical power but didn't actually make any difference. In any case, I'd have these little squares. I, I mean, when I say squares, I mean I literally went to the hardware store and um, and got uh, actually a ship's chandler and got a, 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 a spool of of, re of yellow nylon uh, rope and and put stakes in the ground, tent stakes, and I made this little mm -hmm. grid of twelve That's squares. Mm -hmm. And I would send out the mimeographed picture of the twelve squares. And I would say, um, all right, I'd like you to go forward in time, or I'd like you to go look at this grid, and would you please locate the, the where the thing that I would like you to describe is in the grid? Could you pick which square it was in? And I discovered people could do that. And then I would say, um, okay, now I would like you to tell me um, what it is that I have buried like a perfume bottle or a tube of toothpaste or uh, a, a kitchen sponge. They could do it. I mean, they couldn't always do it, but they could do it with a, enough rely, reliability that it was highly significant statistically. And then I, I began thinking about how to improve it and I had been an investigative reporter for newspapers and started out at the National Geographic. And I thought, well, you know, what happens if you heard an explosion outside of your studio and you you uh, ran out into the road and you outside of your house and you saw a group of people, what would you do? Well, you'd take them aside one by one and say, well, what did you see? No, not everybody would see everything. They got involved at different times or caught their attention. And in any case, you know, men see things a little differently than women. So, but if you ask them all individually, it's exactly what the intelligence services do or what investigative reporters do. Yeah. And you look for where they were consensual, you would get a pretty good picture of what had happened. And I decided, well, that was I'd do the same thing. So I began developing what came to be known as the Mobius Consensus Protocol. And uh, I would get multiple people to do this, and it greatly improved the accuracy of what I was doing. 
I would expect to see, and this is still true today, that of the information that could be evaluated, somewhere between oh, 78 uh, to 90% of it would be either correct or partially correct. So by partially correct, I mean if you said <clears throat> uh, the woman sitting with the plaid shirt um, that was predominantly red, um, you might be partially right. That is, maybe the plaid really people would think of it as blue, but the plaid part would be the important part and the shirt would be the, that would all be correct. So that would be a partial correct. And at the same time, because I sort of came out of anthropology, in anthropology at that time, there was a big discussion going on about where to look in archeology. span uh, People, most things, archeological sites were found serendipitously. That is a farmer would be plowing a field and turn up a tomb or something. Or somebody, uh, uh, they'd be building a road, and as they cut through to make the road, they would reveal a temple. And so archaeology was all about, well, where do we look, and how do we get, uh -huh. how do we improve where we can look better? Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, because I also, as I say, came out of an anthropological orientation, and in anthropology, Carlos Castaneda had just torn anthropology apart. Uh, I, I don't know how many people still know Carlos Castaneda, but he was a young anthropologist uh, in California who wrote a, a series of books, first three are the important ones, um, in which his argument was, you can't understand shamanism until you walk the shaman's path, because at that time, Shamans were considered power-oriented people who wanted to get status in their tribe by mumbo-jumbo, basically. And that's the way most anthropologists wrote it up. And, and, and Castaneda said, no, you're not, you don't understand. These people are having altered states of consciousness experiences. Mm -hmm. And so the combination of the archaeology issue and the anthropology issue got me interested in finding archaeological sites because it's a perfect triple-blind experiment. Everybody agrees they know that it existed, but everybody also agrees they don't know where it is. So if you could find it uh, using what I came to call distant viewing, we now call it remote viewing, mm -hmm. um, well, then you had to be accessing non-local consciousness because nobody knew the answer. It didn't exist. Um and so I started working um, on archaeological problems very successfully using this multiple viewer technology. And I've just been doing it ever since and to trying yeah, to figure brilliant. out, mm -hmm. you know, most people get into research about, well, psychic, a word I never use. But most people get, uh, get into non-local consciousness research basically designing experiments to prove, is this real? And there's still a huge argument that goes on. The materialists don't like it, of course, because it violates materialism. Yes, yes. Um, but, you know, is this stuff real? And that's the way they design experiments. By the time I started doing experiments uh, in 68, 
I had spent all those years reading all the journals and books and all the Edgar Casey readings. I didn't have any question that it was real. I knew it was real. The question I wanted to know or the questions I wanted to know was how does it work? How can you improve access to non-local consciousness? Mm-hmm. Can you do anything of practical utility with it? Exactly, yeah. And what is it telling us about who we are as human beings and our place in the universe? And so those are really the questions I have been interested in as opposed to is this real? And so my experiments demonstrate that it's real because mm-hmm. they're all done under such controlled conditions. But basically what I'm trying to do is to figure out what is this telling us about consciousness yes. mm-hmm. and and how do we access it and use it? Mm-hmm. Well, that was a brilliant use of that for archaeology, uh, I must say. And, and that's what a wonderful story on how all this came about. Uh, and I'm sure that you're using remote viewing for what may be coming in the future. But let's talk about right now what's happening now in the world. So Max Planck said that the mind is the matrix of all matter. And you wrote in Beyond Fear and Rage that we must, as you say, recognize that all life is interconnected and interdependent and consciousness is underlying all. You also say that, quote, we must make well-being our first priority. Has our collective consciousness, since it's non-local, then created the novel coronavirus? Well, I would frame it a little differently. I would say we live in a matrix of consciousness. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, so you, you cite Plunk, and I am a Plunkian. Plunk also said in an interview in 1931, they asked him, you know, what have you learned you and Einstein are the most famous scientists in the world. What have you learned? And his answer must have been very surprising to the Observer newspaper who asked the question, their reporter, because Planck said, what I've learned is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. You cannot get behind consciousness. Space-time, what we call reality, arises from consciousness, not consciousness arising from space-time. And so mm-hmm. if you think of it that way, then all organisms are essentially expressions of consciousness. So did we create the coronavirus? No, I don't think that's quite what's going on. I would say that the coronavirus is part of the matrix of consciousness and that as a result of humanity's grotesque stupidity, about the fact that we don't live on the earth, we live in the earth, and we don't have dominion over the earth. We are part of a matrix of consciousness of which the earth itself is an expression. Mm -hmm. And as we have created climate change, the organisms that are part of the matrix have adapted and mutated in order to accommodate themselves to uh, the changed circumstances. And from everything I can see, the COVID-19 virus, this novel coronavirus, is a result of some kind of a mutation amongst viruses. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, we're now dealing with it. And this is, from my perspective, and you're right, I, I get people to remote view the future. This is just the beginning. Yeah. We're, we're going to see a number of these things. And what the coronavirus is showing us is the utter inadequacy of a healthcare system that is essentially based on profit and not well-being. Exactly. You just wrote a scathing report about it on uh, March 12th in your article that I just saw on Science, uh, Science Direct, uh, saying that we're just not prepared, not even for this, but for uh, providing adequate health care to people in remote areas in this country because it has become a business. And as you say, we have not put our well-being at the top priority in this country or in a lot of the world. Yes, that's I mean, my view is, after all these years of doing research on social trends, and I've been doing it now for decades, my view is the function of the state is to foster well-being from the individual to the family, the community, the state, the nation, and the earth itself, and all the beings that share the matrix with us. And when you support and foster life-affirming well-being, you are on the right track. So it makes everything really quite simple in the sense that I don't really care about politics except from an anthropological point of view. I mean, it's a kind of ritualized activity. What I care about is, is this going to create compassionate, life-affirming fostering of well-being? And if it does, then I'm in support of it. And if it doesn't, I'm not. And what we're seeing as this COVID-19 virus goes around is the utter inadequacy of a healthcare system, which is essentially based not on producing health, but on producing profit. And so the United States is living with the reality of what it created because the American society over the years has evolved from what the founders had in mind, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to greed, 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 greed. Yes. and uh, get as much as you can and screw everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I agree. Do you think that from this experience that we're going through now, that we will learn from this and prepare for the next one that's coming? Because, yes, I agree, things are ramping up now. Well, you know, uh, to tell you the truth, I don't actually know the answer to that. I don't think it's clear yet. We are still in, a, I mean, you just look at what's going on in the Congress and and the, I don't quite know what to call it, the grotesque incompetence of the White House. Um, I hope. My hope is that we will come out of this coronavirus business recognizing that universal birthright um, single-payer health care built on the fostering of well-being is really the only way to run a health care system. Already the data is coming in that those countries with universal health care uh, are much better able to cope with the virus than than we are. I mean, it's having an enormous effect on the status of the United States in the world. You know, Norway is telling its stu its graduate students that are at university here 
come back because you're in a country that doesn't have an adequate health care system. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. we've gone from being the shining city on the hill we're not, we're to not. being yeah. uh, the slum in the, uh, down in the, in the valley. I mean, it's so I'm hoping that people are going to finally wake up and therefore vote accordingly to the idea that we must have universal birthright single-payer health care that's oriented to well-being. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't, and that's why all this is going on. Did you have your remote viewers look to see what might happen? But first of all, did they see this corona novel coronavirus coming? And secondly, did they look to see uh, what might happen because of it? Uh, what are the effects? Yes. From 1978 to 1991, I um, I asked about 4,000 people all over the world, everywhere I went when I spoke at a conference or whatever, so literally all over the world, I asked uh, people to remote view the same date that they were doing the, the session in the year 2050. So... Uh, today would be the Thursday, March the 19th. So I would say to you, I want you to go forward in time to March the 19th, 2050, right? So I would get a spectrum because, uh, you know, I would do this on different days. So you eventually would get the whole year. And, um, and, And I would ask them to describe the world as it was in 2050. And, um, and how we got there. And when I began in 78, uh, my real interest in doing this, because I had come out, I just left government. I had been the special assistant to the chief of naval operations for two of the chief of naval operations and had worked for the secretary of Navy and over, had done some work for the, the president at, and, um, and I was on the MIT discussion group on uh, Secretary of Defense MIT discussion group on innovation technology in the future. And most people at that time who were doing geopolitical assessments and futurist assessments were looking at, oh, we're going to run out of everything. There's going to be terrible um, uh, uh inadequacy of natural resources, will be grossly overpopulated, and, um, and, and that we're very likely to have a nuclear war. And, I mean, you know, very few people realize, for instance, that World War III was avoided because of one Soviet colonel, one Russian colonel, who wouldn't push the button. Wow. Uh, I mean, most people don't know that, but uh, the Soviet radar systems, early warning systems, gave a false report. And this guy was supposed to push the button, but he didn't. And as a result, a nuclear exchange was avoided. But at that time, you know, the day after tomorrow, you remember on the beach, yeah. those movies? Yes, yeah. yeah. So I, in 1978, when I began this, as I said, I just left government, so I was, I had been heavily briefed up until my leaving. 
I thought it was very probable we were going to have a nuclear war. And so I began getting people to remote view the future with that in mind. And much to my astonishment, they said, no, there's not a nuclear war. And so I said, well, then the world must be much safer. And they said, oh, no, the world is much more dangerous. I said, really? Why? And they said, because of terrorism. Mm. Now, in 1978, the only terrorists that anybody paid any attention to were the IRA in in uh, uh, yeah. in Ireland and Northern Ireland, right? Yeah, um, and what they were doing in in Britain. Um, the idea that the world would be rocked by terrorism all over the world, the idea just didn't exist, and so. That surprised me a great deal. And then I said, well, you know, is there anything else that's making us unsafe? And the remote viewers said, well, yeah, there's a lot of, of epidemics. Really? <laughs> really? Epidemics? You mean like, well, actually, we call them pandemics today. Yeah, but Yeah, yeah. And they said, yes. And I said, well, you know, uh, tell me about that. And they said, well, the first one. Now, this is not everybody, but this is the consensus view. Again, I make that stress. You know, 4,000 people get asked the same questions. Not everybody gives the same answer, but a consensus of people do give the predominant answer. And so that's what happened. And they said, well, the first one of these epidemics will be a blood disease which crosses over from primates in Africa and spreads around the world and kills millions of people. And so I went to a friend of mine at the National Institutes of Health and said to him, do you know anything about a blood disease that crosses over from primates in Africa and it's going mm -hmm. to kill millions of people? And, and his answer was, I don't know what you're smoking, Stephen, but quit. And so, you know, you know anything about it. That's 1978, 79. Mm -hmm. 1981, AIDS starts. AIDS, yeah. Yeah. And it kills 35 million people around the world. Most people don't know that either. So they didn't specifically say about the COVID-19 virus, because I didn't ask. But what they did say was this: that would be the first of a series of epidemics. And, of course, then the Ebola epidemic, the, swan, the bird flu epidemic, H1, I can't even remember, H, yeah. H1N1, whatever. Yeah, yeah, the swine flu, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. All of those, you know, are kinds of epidemics. And so now we're dealing with the COVID-19 novel coronavirus. And as I said, if you think about why all these things are starting and where they're coming from, what's happening is that they may start in a particular place like this one apparently started in China. It's not as 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 the person who is the president uh, says that China, you know, that's just gross racism. Um, what does happen is that somewhere on the earth, as it, as these organisms are stressed as a result of uh, the circumstances that we humans are creating, they mutate and we don't have any uh, defense against them and they spread. And as climate change gets worse and worse, um, uh, my uh, my uh, uh, assessment is that we're going to see more of them. 
And mm-hmm. so we need to we need to have a healthcare system that is set up to deal with unexpected crises, which is the problem. I mean, we're the problem we're having is that we were completely unprepared for this because we didn't begin to prepare as soon as we found out about it because they thought it was a hoax or some kind of scheme to to impeach the president instead of being a medical event and and so we are completely unprepared so uh, what i think i hope we're going to learn out of this is that we have to get a system that works and we have to begin to prepare because that lack of preparedness means millions of people die yes unfortunately there's a theory going around that 5G, because it started in China, yeah, is yeah. somehow affecting this virus or affecting us and, and creating uh, more of a problem. Was there anything that was talked about from your remote viewers about 5G and its effects on the virus or on the human population? I have done a great deal of research uh, about the coronavirus. I I write about it almost every day. I don't think there is a shred of evidence that that is true. I don't think it has anything to do with 5G. That's just one of those conspiracy theories. I think what happened was a, a virus you know this coronavirus is not the only coronavirus exactly exactly um that this virus mutated, mutated. and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It started off um it's much less important sort of how it mutated than it is that it did mutate uh and it started off and what it's telling us i i see it as a way as i said as a wake up call that we need to be prepared that as climate change goes on and as the Earth's metasystems alter, that there are going to be other mutations of various kinds and that um, we need to be prepared for that. Um, And we need to begin the the example. Let let me give you an example. when they um, uh, started, now let me go back a little earlier here. Um, let me see how to do this. Okay, yes. Um, after World War One, uh, Joan, the um, the so many people died in World War One, and, and and they died for such stupid reasons. I mean, that that was a war we kind of didn't want to get into, but got into. And then we were completely unprepared for it. Uh, And so at the end of 1918, uh, smart people, a small group of smart people, it started with the League of Nations and then it became part of the United Nations, began thinking, well, suppose this happened again. What would we do? And they they formed a committee, a task force, and and that task force began to work. And so between 1918 and 1938, really, or, I mean, we got involved a, a little later. A few later, years later, yeah, but, yeah. But, 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 um, 
um, between just that twenty-year period, these people were were still alive that had gone through World War One. They began planning. Well, if it happened again, you know, what would we do about all these people that are wandering around in these destroyed cities? I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of people who were, you know, just displaced. In fact, um, you know, at the end of Second World War, they were called displaced persons. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they began to put together preparation to think about how to do it. How would you feed people? How would you provide sanitation? How would you provide medical care? How would you provide child care? Um, and when World War Two ended, the, the then headed the United Nations. Um, Committees were had were already in place to help prepare and to help the displaced persons, and so Europe made a much faster recovery than you would have thought possible um, as a result of this pre-planning. That's the point I'm trying to make, and so I think we ought to establish a permanent standing pandemic committee. In fact, the Obama administration did establish it, and then Trump disbanded and fired everybody. Um, but the idea is that we need to have a standing mm-hmm. science group, science-based group who are planning for what happens if, and lays up the tents, the swabs, the masks, the, the cleansers, the, you know, all of that stuff that we don't have enough of now. Um, so that we are prepared to deal with this. You know, I mean, right now you have, I think about this a lot. My, I recently talked with my daughter. My, my, my daughter is uh, the president of a social services agency in Northern California. And she's got about a hundred and some people that work for her and, and I was, and she's also a single mother of a seven-year-old boy. And I was talking with her over the last weekend as this quarantine in place business got started. And I said, you know, what are you going to do? And she, she was very concerned about not only the people that were their clients, most of whom are in crisis. That's why they get involved with her agency because they're in crisis already, but also the hundred or so men and women who are, many of whom are parents and many of whom, as it turns out, are single mothers. Um, What are they going to do? How do you work when your child doesn't go to school and there's no health care and there's no child care center and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, it's, this is just an enormous crisis. And um, one thing's for sure, uh, we are going to lay down plans. So if anything like this ever happens again, we, we aren't trying to do it ad hoc as we go along, which is what we're doing now. And I think about that. I mean, all of these millions of children who are now out of school and in many states, they're saying, well, the schools won't open again until next fall. So what in the world are these children going to do? And how are these mothers or fathers going to be able to work 
If they're yeah. single parents, who's going to look after their kids? And if you can't gather together, if you can't get a group of people um, and you're supposed to stay quarantined in your own house, well, then what are you going to do? And I, we don't have an answer for that. And I think that that's one of those things that we need to think about. I, I spoke at a conference of doctors, and I said to these guys, what would you do? I mean, there are, there are now about 35 million climate change refugees. The estimates are from the UN that um, sometime after 2050, and this was confirmed by the 2050 viewers, we're going to have something on the order of 750 million people in the world who will be climate refugees. And so I said to these doctors, wow. what would you do in your town if 10,000 strangers suddenly swarmed into your town because their whatever happened in their town, they couldn't stay there? <laughs> Where would they go to the bathroom? <laughs> I mean, just that basic. Uh, where would they get water? Suppose they went to your emergency room. What would you do? And these <laughs> these doctors just kind of looked at me with these blank looks. Oh, my God, we couldn't possibly deal with that. And, of course, that's what's happening now with the, the COVID-19 yeah, yeah. virus is that these emergency rooms, and we're talking about, well, the hospitals are swamped and you know, China built a thousand bed hospital in 10 days in Wuhan in order to deal with what they were facing. Mm -hmm. What would we do? It's not just the people who become migrants. You know, 52% uh, of the American public live within in what's called a coastal county. And the best estimates are that maybe 150 million people are going to be impacted by climate change and sea yeah, rise. Yeah. Rising right. sea levels, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have three big migrations in the United States, away from the coasts as the sea rise occurs, out of the southwest because of temperature and lack of water, and out of the central states because of massive uh, in, uh, weather events like tornadoes. Mm -hmm. So... It's not just the, the cities or towns or villages that are impacted where it happens. It's also the cities, towns, and, and villages that are impacted as those migrants, those internal migrants, uh, uh, go to those places that are safer. Yeah, I mean, what happens to one happens to all. Yes, I mean, right now, uh, the American rural health care system is collapsing. Hospitals are closing every day. Hundreds of them have closed. I mean, you know, there are certain parts of this country already where, say, you were a pregnant woman, you know, and your water broke at 12 o'clock at night, and you raced to the, uh, the hospital to do your delivery. Well, in large parts of the United States, you might have to drive more than 100 miles. Yes. So yes. you're going to deliver your baby in the back of a truck. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. because these hospitals have closed and also because as a result of the immigration policies, the doctors and nurses, which, which mostly man these rural hospitals, um, because they're willing to work at lower wages than, than uh, the native, um, not the Native American, the, the indigenous American doctors who want to work in the big cities and things like that. So most of American rural hospitals are heavily, the nurses and doctors are immigrants. Only we don't have those immigrants anymore. We are already 58,000 primary care physicians short. So what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? And I, those are the questions that I am hoping that the COVID-19 virus are going to stimulate us to ask. I do, too. We clearly cannot go on as we're doing. No, we can't. No, we can't. You talked about your 2050 viewers, and before we did this um, interview, we spoke, and you talked about remote viewing to 2040 and 2045, to that period. And you said something about an Earth cataclysm that they saw then. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I'm still doing this research, so I haven't reached any conclusions yet. But what I would say or will say is that from what the remote viewers tell me, I'm now looking uh, further ahead than 2050. And I'm going to compare the 2050 data with this new data that I've I've got about 1,500 people to do this. Mm -hmm. And um, what does seem to be clear from what they're saying is that somewhere around 2040 or 2045, there's some kind of really cataclysmic event or events that occur. Now, I, you don't, I, I don't know what it is, but I mean, look at what's happening to the economy of the United States uh, in March of 2020. I mean, who yeah. would have guessed six months ago yes. that, the entire that the stock market would have gone down so much that everything that had been obtained over the last three years was wiped out and that we now have huge numbers of people who are applying for um, unemployment compensation. I mean, if, if you and I had done this interview, say, last November, None of the things that are going on would have been, I mean, just incomprehensible. Simple, yeah. People would have thought we were crazy if we were starting to talk about yes. that, if that's what your viewers saw. Yes, yes. So I don't know why the 2040, 2045 period, and I need to pin it down better, and that's what I'm mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. But something really major happens, and that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, meteorites suddenly strike the earth or uh, whatever, uh, it could be something as simple as another one of these kinds of viruses or some other kind of event like that. I don't know what what that means. Uh, Uh I'm trying to find out. All I can say at this point is that between 2040 and 2045, that something really major happens. we're on the other side of it, and we are a different society. As I, as I say, as I hope we will be a different society 
on the other side of the coronavirus. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I pray to. So what do you see as the greatest challenge to the earth, to all of us now? Climate change. Climate change is going to change everything. First of all, large parts of the world are going to disappear. Is this through remote view? I'm sorry, uh, Stefan. Is this through remote viewing and or is this through your research, uh, through scientists and what they're saying? No, this is just science. I mean, it's supported by what the remote viewers say. I mean, that was another thing. The remote viewers in 78 started talking to me about, oh, well, the climate is completely different. What do you mean the climate is different? I mean, it's, you know, it's the earth, right? How can the climate be different? Oh, it's radically different, they would say. I didn't even understand what they meant. I mean, I, I just couldn't make any sense of it. You know, they said, for instance, the Soviet Union would disappear. Now, I had just come out of a working for the Defense Department or the Department of the Navy, and I had spent the preceding six years looking at geopolitical issues about the Soviet Union, this great monolithic superpower, blah, 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 blah. And so the idea that it was going to disappear, I thought, what do you mean? That Martians are going to come down and take it away? Or I mean, I... And this is where Stefan got oh. cut off. Well, we just lost contact with Stefan. Um, hopefully he'll come back here. Um, so if he doesn't, um, let's hope that 2050 uh, we're still here and 2060 and that we learn from this COVID-19 virus and that we all work together he does mention in his eight laws of change that we have to make change from small individuals that make choices based in integrity and shared intention. So may we all make those choices from our hearts for the greatest good of all. And uh, let me just correct myself. I misspoke there. They were uh, small individual choices, not small individuals. There are no small individuals. Uh, We all are children of the earth and children of the creator. And so, yeah, I do pray that we learn from this, that we plan, that we pre-plan, because as scientists are saying, As his remote viewers are saying, there will be more. There will be more changes. And will we be up to the task? That's the question that we're faced right now. And I do pray that we answer it well. Next week, Susan Manowich, Manowich, excuse me, will be on to talk about mindfulness and strategy and new energy technology. She's the co-author of the book Hidden Energy with Jean Manning that we've had on the show before. I'm looking forward to that. And I sincerely hope that all of you are following your social distancing or staying home if you can. Thank you to all of those that are out there that have to work and that are working for the good of all. And stay safe and well, everyone. Much love. Take care.